Well, I turned 55 yesterday and I'm no taller. I don't know, I still, I still need the step stool. I was praying for a miracle with yesterday's birthday and it just didn't happen. So, five foot three and what do they say about dynamite, I guess? I'm not sure. So, let's go to the Lord as we turn to his word in a time of prayer this morning. Father, thank you for speaking to us and revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, revealing the prejudices, the attitudes, the biases, the presuppositions of our heart. Lord, we, we ask in this time of prayer of illumination that you would supernaturally by your spirit work because naturally we're not going to understand. If we just count on and depend on ourselves, we're not going to understand your word. We're certainly not going to see its relevance for our lives. We're not going to be able to come under it and be conformed to, to Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, we're praying that you will be at work uh, in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing. We've been going through the book of Mark, and we are continuing to look at the life and ministry of Jesus. And this morning, the passage upon which our teaching is based comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. So let's turn our hearts to the word of God. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. We're looking at a passage this morning that highlights the theme of mission. The mission of Jesus, and thus by extension, the mission of the disciples. We want to ask the question, what does this passage teach us about mission? And we learn two things. Two things we learn about mission. We learn, one, that mission is dangerous, and two, that mission is costly. So you're thinking, wow, this is an uplifting sermon already. I'm really glad... You're sending me out from here and telling me it's not safe, it's dangerous, and it's going to cost me something. And I'm going, yep, please stay put. Don't flock to the exits just yet. It's a dangerous mission, and it's a costly mission. 
The narrative shows us Jesus' mission in his hometown of Nazareth's. The fairly cold reception. Nazareth, this humble little, it's not a big cosmopolitan city, a small little village that he grew up in. He goes back home after doing all his miracles in and around Capernaum and that particular area. And did they throw a party for him? Was it kind of like, here comes Jesus, welcome back, and all? No. Actually, one of the key words there is in verse 3 when it says, and they took offense at him. We'll look at that in a few minutes, but that's the Greek word scandalon from which we get our English word scandal. And the meaning of that word is much more than just kind of a disagreement where two people agree to disagree. We're talking a visceral hostility. Now, see, there's something we also need as we approach this text, as we're kind of diving into some of the details, something we also need to understand here. Jesus gives a lot of instructions in this particular narrative that are given that are very time-specific to Jesus' specific time and his disciples. So, for example, taking no money, I would suggest if you're going out to share the gospel with somebody at Starbucks, please bring some money, okay? You don't have to follow that specific application. Take no bag. Women, I have good news for you. You can carry your purses. Men, I won't comment on this, but if you carry a man bag, it's okay. Go for it. You know, some, some are going, they don't like that application. From the word, though, it's okay. All right? But what's going on here, even though the commands may not be, some are time-specific to Jesus' unique ministry, there are lessons. There are principles for us to learn and for us to appropriate here. See, what do we have going on in this particular text? We have two accounts. Verses 1 to 6, Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth ministering and being rejected. A prophet has honor, right? Goes everywhere else, has honor, comes back home. And his own family, his relatives, his household, his hometown, they don't respect him there. And by extension, what does Jesus do? He sends out the disciples and he says, yeah, some are going to receive your word, but obviously with that whole thing, and again, we'll get to it a little bit later, shake the dust off your feet. Some aren't going to receive you. Some aren't going to like you so much. The mission is dangerous. One of the first lessons that we have to learn here, very practical lessons that we learn here, since we see Jesus' mission and we see, by extension, the disciples' mission, is we have to recognize that our basic identity is that of mission. Our basic identity, fundamental identity, is to live sent. Jesus said to the disciples after the resurrection, John chapter 20, verse 21, he said, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. We learn, Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 2, that the church, so we have Jesus to his 12, and his 12 by us, because what does Paul say? The church, us, is built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles. So the disciples' ministry is an extension of Jesus's. Ours is built on the foundation. So the principle stays as the Father sent Jesus. The fundamental identity of Jesus was he was sent. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Galatians 4, when the time had fully come, when the time was ripe in the fullness of the time, God sent the son. We are to live sent. Jesus's community, the church, lives sent as Jesus lives sent. And the first thing we learn about that basic identity is that that mission is dangerous which is one of the reasons why, practical lesson to appropriate, is that Jesus sends out his disciples two by two. Doesn't send them out alone. 
We are not to do mission by ourselves. If mission is dangerous for him, it was dangerous for the disciples, it's going to be dangerous for us. One of the graces, one of the means of grace, if you would, that Jesus gives us is the church, is one another. We are to engage together. In fact, if our fundamental identity is that of mission, our fundamental identity is we are a family on mission. Spruce Creek Church exists to be a family of God living sent to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our communities, the ball field, Port Orange, Daytona, New Smyrna. We are to live sent, but we are to do so together. That is one of the reasons, very practically, why the church needs to be the safest place on earth. It is dangerous, and it is to be dangerous, and Jesus is telling us it's dangerous out there. How sad is it when it's dangerous in here? As a matter of fact, if we are to truly live the mission that we've been given, and notice I'm not just saying missions. Evangelism and missions is part of the overall mission to be the people of God, as it was said in the Old Testament, a light to the nations, as Jesus said to his disciples, to be the salt of the earth. So mission is not just our doing, mission is our being. By our distinctiveness, our holiness, our character, by our ordinary lives, we are to be a counter-society, a counter-culture. That's why the church has to be. How sad and tra tragic it is when Christians say, and I read this or I hear this often, when I hear Christians say, well, I would much rather hang out with a non-Christian, at least you don't face judgment there. I think that is so tragic and so sad. The church needs to be a safe place in the foxhole, to use a military metaphor, so to speak, together here, a refuge here, so we can be on mission together out there. Because Jesus' program is for the church. Everything Jesus does is for the church. What is the church? It is his very own body. What is Paul? What's the chief metaphor he uses to describe the church? The body of Christ. He wants to create, he's building a family, that's his interest. He's creating a new society, a city set on a hill, an alternative community to reflect and be an agent of his kingdom. Missiologist by the name of George Huntsberger in the book Missional Church, speaking of the church, writes that the church represents the reign or kingdom of God. That he says the church represents the divine reign as its sign and foretaste agent and instrument. He says it is a sign and foretaste of God's redeeming purpose for the world, and as agent and instrument, it represents God's reign in an active sense. By its very existence, this is amazing, by the very fact that our doors are still open, by the fact that the church exists, the church brings what is hidden into view as sign and into experience as foretaste. And at the same time, it also represents to the world the divine's reign, character, claims, demands, and gracious gifts as its agent and instrument. We are the agent. God is working through us, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, as if God were making his very own appeal, his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. Do we really understand this? Do we really get this? See, this runs counter, completely counter to our culture. 
And I wonder how counter it runs to our very own hearts, and especially to the individualistic tendency that we have in our culture. See, our nature is to do what? Be lone rangers. Rugged individualists, do it ourselves. To be private, strong, invulnerable. Another missiologist, Craig Van Gelder, writes, a primary goal of the Enlightenment, that was the period of time that began roughly two to 300 years ago, brought, to it, brought with it a ton of gifts, a ton of good things, but also some things that we have to be aware, wary of and as a church stand against. And one of them is that a primary goal of the Enlightenment was to formulate a new basis for individual identity as the key to increasing personal freedom. Hear what Van Gelder is saying. He's saying that that time, the Enlightenment, and we've continued to grow out of that, he says that signaled a very important shift for how human beings define themselves, how they would experience freedom, wholeness, flourishing, identity, and be defined. He says before that, your fundamental identity was found like through your family your clan, your village, that kind of stuff. It was more of a together type thing. But beginning with the Enlightenment, the individual became the end all and the key to personal freedom and wholeness. Van Gelder makes the point that we see in the scriptures, and we see this as Jesus is sending them out. He doesn't send them out alone. He sends them out two by two. We see continually in the scriptures, God is working through a people through a community, through a family. The whole nature of covenant theology, the whole nature of covenant theology, the heart of the covenant, covenant, God's means of relating to us. And what is the essence of the covenant? The fact that God says, I will be your God and that your is plural, and you, plural, will be my people. He is forming a people for himself. So the mission is dangerous, and God gives us each other to face that danger. But why is the mission dangerous? Let's step back and ask even more fundamental. Why is the mission dangerous? See, we talk about they took offense. He sends out his disciples two by two. He says, some are going to receive your ministry. Some, they're not going to receive you at all. In other words, you, Jesus faced rejection in his own hometown, in his own family, in his own household, he faced, you will face rejection. The Apostle Paul put it real well when he said to the Corinthians church, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and you, you do understand the relationship between the Gospels and the letters of Paul. They're certainly not contradicting each other. What Paul is doing is taking the life and the ministry and the message of Jesus, and he's applying it to local congregations. He's taking what Jesus did and taught and saying, Corinth, this is, this is what it means. And one of the things he says to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 2, get this. He says, but thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So that means since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, Jesus is leading us, the church, in a victory parade. The victory's been won, and we're being led in a victory parade. And as we're going in that victory parade, it says, through us, he is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Through us, the fragrance of the knowledge. Now, now notice, that's not just Sunday morning. 
doesn't say through us one day a week, two hours a week. Through us when you're at work on Wednesday afternoon. When you're walking the dog in your neighborhood on Saturday morning. When you are on Dunlawton Avenue and you're not too happy with the person driving in front of you. You are all the time, God is saying, through us, the fragrant, he is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. I wonder what kind of smell of God we're giving off. What kind, see, I could say what kind of picture of God are given. That's not Pauline language here. What kind of smell? Do people look at us? Are people around us? And are they attracted? Do we give off a perfume type of odor or do we give off another kind of odor? What kind of fragrance are we giving off? By our care, mission is as much being as it is doing. We need to understand that we are to be the church. That's why the word of God says, be holy as the Lord your God is holy. You are the salt. It doesn't say become the salt of the earth. It doesn't say become, strive, work real hard to be the Because Christ is in you, the hope of glory. You are the light of the world. And through you, the fragrance of the knowledge of him is being spread everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among the only two types of people that are living in the world. Those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And Paul responds, the only way I think you can respond, who in the world is sufficient for such things? But just because he responds with humility doesn't make it less true, doesn't mean we're not fundamentally on mission. Fundamentally, the aroma of Christ is being spread through us, and it is dangerous. For some, that's the smell of death. They're being repelled by it because it's challenging them. It's confirming. Why? Because Jesus is not any ordinary preacher or teacher. The word of God is living and active. It's not a dead word. And the gospel that's being proclaimed, embodied, and lived is always the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus came, and what did he say? In him, in his ministry, in who he is, the kingdom has arrived. Where he was, the kingdom was. And he demonstrated it by what he was doing. He demonstrated it through his teaching. He demonstrated it through his miracles. They demonstrated the reality of the inauguration, the arrival of the kingdom. And as one commentator put it, the kind of kingdom Jesus was talking about was not the sort of kingdom his contemporaries wanted to hear about which is why Jesus gives the explanation after they take offense, this visceral hostility, the scandalon to Jesus that verse 3 says. Verse 4, Jesus gives his explanation of the dynamics going on here. He says, a prophet is not without honor. And Jesus is coming, fulfilling the prophets. He's coming in the ministry of a prophet. He's proclaiming the word of God. And he says, a prophet is not without honor, except... In his own hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And verse 5, which I think is utterly amazing. He says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. See, what's going on there? He could do no mighty work there? Did, did somehow he lose his power? What's going on? The omnipotent Jesus somehow couldn't do it? Well... 
Let's think this through. Of course not. You have to understand in the theme of salvation history what's going on. Verse 4 is anticipating the ultimate rejection of Jesus by Israel. This is why I had Vic read, we had Vic read the parallel account from Luke 4. See, what's going on in the parallel account in Luke's gospel is Jesus arrives in Nazareth, and he reads from the scroll, goes into the synagogue, and reads from what? Isaiah chapter 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Spirit of the Lord God has anointed me to preach and to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, release liberty for the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. In other words, the Jubilee has arrived. He's come to do it, and he talks about then a prophet not having honor in his hometown. And in the midst of that, Luke records two narratives from the Old Testament, both out of the lives of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah with the widow of Zarephath and Elijah and the healing of Naaman. And what do these two accounts have in common? What do these two stories have in common? The widow of Zarephath and Naaman were Gentiles. The gospel was going. See, Israel was never saved for their sake alone. They were always saved. They were always elected for the sake of the world. The covenant in Genesis chapter 12 always held true, and God is still faithful to today. In and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Salvation comes to God's elect so that through the elect it may come to the nations, to the world. The gospel was going to the Gentiles. Salvation was going to the Gentiles. No wonder the mission was dangerous because here they are hearing this. And what is Jesus doing? He's marveling at their unbelief. They're rejecting him. He's marveling at their hard-heartedness. He's talking about rejection by his own people. So when he says in verse 5, he could do no miracle there because of their unbelief. He's not talking about he lost power. But as the commentator William Lane puts it, Mark's intention is not to stress inability His purpose is rather to indicate that Jesus was not free to exercise his power in these circumstances. And what were these circumstances? Unbelief. Hardness of heart. Rejection. Verse 6, he marveled at their unbelief. I wonder, do we marvel at our own unbelief? I know we believe the truth of the scriptures and the concept. But functionally... Do we live like the promises of God are true? Do we live like the gospel is the power of God under salvation? Do we live where Paul says to Timothy, you've been given not a spirit of timidity, a spirit of fear, but you have been given promise. It's a reality, a spirit of love, a spirit of power, and a spirit of self-discipline. Do we appropriate that? Do we connect dots between what we intellectually believe, and then living out of that promise. If not, that's called functional unbelief. And R.C. Sproul talked about the church a long, long time ago. He says there are more functional atheists in the church than anywhere else. And Jesus marvels. Do we even have enough sadness, brokenness to to identify, to be willing and have the courage to ask, where do I have functional unbelief in my life? Or are we set to let rest, so to speak, on our laurels? 
Jesus marveled at their unbelief. See, the tension between faith and unbelief connects both these accounts. Jesus faced rejection. The disciples will face rejection. Jesus' mission was dangerous. The disciples' mission will be dangerous. Because unbelief is the context in which the gospel mission advances, which is why the mission is not only dangerous, but also costly. The second point. Let's remember where Mark has taken us so far with his disciples. Let's remember at the point where we are here in Mark chapter 6, because he's carefully prepared for this point, which we now reach in the narrative. Remember Mark chapter 1, verses 16 to 20, with his initial calling. Peter and Andrew, James and John, what did he call them to be? Fishers of men. Missional identity. Sometimes, and I read some missiologists said this, we refer to the church as missional church. And he says, well, if you don't have missional, you don't have church. The church is missional. He called the disciples to be fishers of men. That's who they were. Then in chapter 2, that calling led to the election of Levi or Matthew. Pointed forward to his election, which what was he called to do? Immediately, what did he do? He became a fisher of men because the text in Mark chapter 2 talks about how he immediately started inviting tax collectors and sinners to come. And Jesus went, you want to talk about scandalous, Jesus went and had dinner with them. Jesus went and got involved with them. Which as usual, talk about cost of mission, aroused some of the scandalon, so to speak, the hostility of the leaders and the Pharisees to which Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. I'm hanging out with those I've come to call. Mark chapter 3 pointed towards the 12 who were set apart with the promise of being with Jesus and being sent out by Je- fishers of men. Levi, go out, be with Jesus and go out till we get here in chapter 6 and they're sent out two by two to preach and give an authority to expel demons. Their ministry at the same time, both and, is a ministry of word and deed. Dangerous and costly. What does the mission cost the disciples? Well, again, remember I said earlier, the specific instructions Jesus gives pertain to their particular time and place, but there are lessons we can apply. And certainly one thing we learn for sure is that when you see yourself as on mission, you lose control. You come to realize quickly that you are not in control. Can you think of anything that's less than in being? I don't know what you're like when you want to pack for a trip. There's a reason when I went away a couple of weeks ago, I brought like 20 of my books. I'm like, I, I have to be prepared. I have to be in control. I got to have all my books. You know? Can you imagine being the disciples and being told, I want you to go away. You're going out. We're sending you out. And here's what I want you to take. Nothing. No money. No bag. No, in fact, one tunic. And what is that showing you? You have to be totally dependent on God. And here's the crux of it. Here's the hard part. You thought totally dependent on God was hard by being totally dependent on others. Imagine knocking on the door. This is what they said, if a house receives you, what would it mean? Now, if you're there without a bag, without a belt, without money, without a tunic, what does that mean? 
You're knocking on the door more than saying, I have a message for you. You're saying, I'm hungry, naked, and need shelter. Will you take, you're dependent on God by being dependent on others, and specifically, others' hospitality. Mission is costly to the disciples because it takes you out of control. This is not a lone ranger type of mission. We need each other. And if they were not received, they would shake the dust off their feet as they were leaving as a testimony against them. Now, we're kind of like, what in the world does that mean? I always wipe my feet before I go into somebody's house. What is... I usually do it before I go in more than when I leave. But in the original context, this would have been quite intelligible in light of ancient Jewish practice. As one commentator reminds us, it was the custom of pious Jews who had traveled outside of Israel to remove carefully from their feet and clothing all dust of the alien lands in which they had traveled. By this action, see? All the dust of the alien... Oh, keep that away from me. What were they signaling? By this action, they disassociated themselves from the pollution of those lands and their ultimate judgment. An analogous action on the part of the disciples would declare that a village was pagan in character. And this prophetic act was designed to provoke thought on the part of the rejecting villages. There's a cost to the disciples. But more importantly, there was a cost to Jesus. What did it cost Jesus? See, think about this. Did Jesus shake the dust off his feet and have nothing to do with us? Did Jesus see the pollution? Vic so rightly mentioned when he read from Luke chapter 4, the evil, the wickedness of our heart. Nobody would be more justified than Jesus to shake the dust off his feet, shake the dust off of himself and say, I have nothing to do with the alien people that have rejected and turned away from me. But as one commentator put it, as is so often seen in Mark, there's a pointer here. A pointer towards the time when Jesus would come to the city that he might think of as his own home, his hometown, Jerusalem, to the temple where a Messiah ought to go and was once again rejected, only this time with utterly fatal consequences. Already at this stage of the story, we're being pointed to see where it will all lead. And where does it all lead? It leads to the cross. The climax of the cross is what it will cost Jesus, who instead of shaking the dust off of himself, takes the dust of our own pollution, takes it upon himself, bears in his own body and soul our own sin and the judgment of God. So that we never have to fear him doing away with us. His death and subsequent resurrection is the climax that brings true healing and true transformation. Even the detail in this particular passage, when you think of Jesus' family, enlisted among Jesus' family that were a part of taking offense of him, did you notice one was his brother James? And you think about who James became after the death and resurrection of Jesus? the leader of the Jerusalem church. 
They took offense at Jesus. They were scandalized by Jesus. And the ultimate scandal is the scandal of the cross. Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly. It's offense. It's foolishness. It's scandalous to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the very power of God. What did the mission cost Jesus? Everything. And what did he get? He got us. A family to be on mission with him. Through us to spread everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. The message of the cross. Power. The power of God to those who are being saved. What is it to you? Father, teach us to cherish the word of the cross. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To recognize now as we come to the Lord's table that we're coming to feast on you, that you are giving us yourself. And we pray, Lord, that we would feast, that we who are hungry and thirsty would come and eat and drink by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.